My name is Skolp Mietling, and this is the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. A podcast about open source, the open web, sustainability, and those who want to make the web and the world a better place. Hey, Brian, and welcome to the Mechanical Inc. Podcast. Thank you. I appreciate it. Happy to be here. Yeah, so I found you... By chance, I was, I think I was looking for an alternative to some application that I was using because I was using, um, I'm on a Mac. And so I was using this thing. I've, <laughs> I've even forgotten what the service is called, but you get this service where essentially you pay like $10 a month and then you have this catalog of software that you can install. Um, and it's, it's cool. It's pretty nice. But at some point I was like, eh, I wonder if I really need this. So I was starting to look for like alternatives. Um, I was kind of like, I always talk about open source, how great open source is. I should really like, you know, find open source things and see what there is and what there isn't. And um, so I was starting to find stuff. But then for some things, it was harder than other things. And I started looking around and I stumbled upon your channel on YouTube. And I started watching a couple of videos and I was like, hey, this is really cool. I should speak to the persons whose voice is behind all of this cool stuff. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so I reached out and you, you're like excited to do this. And here we are. So yeah, absolutely. I, I've given a bit of an introduction to that, but I think you can do a much better job. So I'm going to hand it over to you. So please tell us more about yourself, um, how the Open Source and Awesome channel on YouTube came to be. Okay, yeah. I'm, a, I'm Brian McGonagill, and uh, yeah, I'm an open source advocate. Uh, is that, that's how I introduce my videos. I, I noticed that uh, tons of channels on YouTube, they, they always started with, hey guys, and I just felt it felt so generic to, to say that it's, it's a natural thing to say because you're trying to introduce yourself to people and say, Hey, we're starting, but I just thought, let me, let me come up with something a little bit different. So I always start with the open source advocate. Um, you know, that's the channel is interesting. I, I have a full-time job. I work as a product manager in software. I've done that for about 15 years now. Um, my background before that was a graduate degree in physics. And then I worked at large Hadron Collider in CERN. And I've worked at Intel doing process engineering for, for chips and things like that. But um, I, I was a police officer before all of that for about 10 years. So I've, I've got a strange background that mixes together well for what I do because I work as a product manager for a company that makes software for public safety. So law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, things like that. And uh, it, it's a super rewarding job. I love it. But uh, in my in my daily personal life, I really try very hard to use only open source software whenever possible. It, it's one of those things that I wasn't always like that. I, I, I was just like everybody else that started off using computers. It had Windows on it when I got my first PC and, I, and it was like Windows 3, I think. Um, but, you know, I, I, I was just, OK, here it is great. What do I do with it? And, and looked at all the applications that were there. And I was very accustomed to using the things that came with it or the things that the university wanted you to use, you know, uh, you know, office suites and, and different things like that. So uh, when I got into graduate school, I started working with uh, the, the, the Large Hadron Collider project in the Open Science Grid. And that really got me into using Linux to do that with the clustered systems. And I started really looking at Linux and thinking, well, wow, have I never heard of this before? Have I not seen this and, and you know, come across it in the past? And um, it was really very interesting to me that it was such a great little system and, and it really worked well on my hardware. 
you got to do a few extra steps back then to get the, the drivers and things working like that, you know, but it was great. And I, uh, as time's gone on, as social media has become such a huge impact on everybody, I started realizing how much, how much of our information we just hand over freely, where if the government was to ask for it from you, you'd be angry, <laughs> but they don't have to. They just have to go look you up on social media and there it is. You've, you've given it away, you know, completely without thinking about it. You've told them everything about you, your height, your weight, your pictures, your family, you know, your friends, your network of people that you know, everything that they want to know about you, where you work, what you're interested in, they, they can get it. And, and I know it makes me sound a little bit like a conspiracy kind of person, but I guess conspiracies are, are you know, only conspiracies until you realize, wow, that's actually pretty accurate what we're doing. So I, I was looking around for open source alternatives to a lot of the stuff that I used every day. I wanted to start hosting my own things. I wanted to start keeping things in my home and on and under my control and really getting my family protected because I'm, I'm fairly technically savvy, but my family is your average user, which is like, if it works out of the box, that's what I want. So if I can't find something that does that, you know, I'm, I'm their IT guy, right? So I, I don't, I don't have time to be their IT guy. So I've got to find great solutions. So yeah, I was really looking all over the place for, for good open source software. And I was, I was watching YouTube videos and there were these great, you know, seven minute intros to something, but it was never any kind of detail of, okay, how did you get that installed? Where did you even find it? You know, they'd give you a really great intro to what the software was, but it was just no, no meat to the, to the video. It was really just a way to kind of get your, your appetite going. And then I was getting frustrated trying to find it. Um, not that it wasn't there. I just, either I didn't know how to look or, or maybe it wasn't there yet, but I thought, okay, if I can't find detailed videos, then I'm going to start making some videos and see if I can do what these guys aren't. And, and, you know, my, my timing is always terrible. Um, I decided to do really long detailed videos whenever things like TikTok were coming along, when YouTube shorts were, you know, getting popular, when Twitter was, was at its, you know, height where people only wanted to communicate with 140 characters and where people wanted to communicate in, you know, two minutes, 30 seconds, 15 seconds, whatever it is. So I, I just thought, okay, it's okay. I'm, I'm still going to stay with long form content. This is where I do better. This is, this is the level of detail I would want if I was the person that was trying to understand this. And, and really I started thinking about, okay, if these are beginners that, that don't have any idea where to start, like what should I show them? What should I be explaining to them? So as I've gone, I've, I've gotten better. When I first started, I, I asked specifically like, Hey, if you, you know, if you see a problem, if you see a way I can improve, let me know in the comments. And people did. Um, so it was great because my audio was terrible. Um, you know, and, and, and I don't see well, so I move close to the screen a lot to see something sometimes where the, where the mm. font is very small yeah, yeah. and I forget about the microphone and my position of my face in the microphone. So <laughs> I get behind it, you know, I get off to the side and the, and the audio starts to, to suffer. Right. So yeah, I've yeah. learned, you know, I had a great viewer that said, Hey, um, I can help you modify your audio afterwards. So it was like three steps on audacity. He was awesome. Like he just walked me right through it. Like it was nothing and it made a huge difference. So, um, yeah, YouTube's, YouTube's been great, but that's how the awesome open source channel started. I mean, I, I just wanted to, to get out there and share with people that open source is awesome. And, you know, you hear these, you still hear these myths today, right? Like, well, open source is not as secure as, as other software. Well, that's, that's absolutely not true because if you can't see it, you don't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? You have no idea how secure or not secure something is. Um, you know, open source is never as good as closed source software. I, I disagree with that too. I think I've found lots of open source applications that I find are much more capable and powerful 
than some other closed source alternatives. Um, so, so yeah, it, it just, it really went from there and, and people, you know, are asking me all the time, Hey, could you cover this or could you cover that? So that's, that's, that's nice to see that people are interested in finding out something else and learning something else. And it keeps me an ever growing list that I never, <laughs> I'll never get all the way through. I'm afraid, but yeah, it, it keeps yeah. me busy. You know, it, it, I, I never worry about running out of content. Let's put it that way. But yeah, it's, that's, that's really where it started. Uh, I know it's a long winded answer to your question, but no, that's it's, it's kind of a, yeah, kind of a long story to get to there. <laughs> Yeah, no, I love it. Love it. That's awesome. And I, I'm so glad the channel exists. Um, it's the other reason why I wanted to do this. Like more people should know about this because it's it's this incredible resource. Like if you, I think it's, it's, I think there's a couple of things there. Like one of the things are that people don't know. They just don't know that there's these options out there. And then the second thing is, like you said, a lot of these kind of dive in in the middle making assumptions that you already have this background knowledge and so people might start getting interested in it but then they kind of feel like oh i guess i'm just too stupid for this because you know we always blame ourselves um so you know being able to say look here's a whole channel that's giving you all these alternatives and this person really walks you through the process. You can like jump in and you can start following along. And if you get stuck, you can ask. There's a forum, all kinds of stuff. There's all kinds of ways you can get support here. I think it's just incredible. And um, to your point about the fact that some people think, oh, this is not as capable, da, da, da. I think a lot of this has to do with UI and UX. I think that sure. is one of the places where open source, unfortunately, still suffers. And it's, it's, it's a combination of things, but I think one of it is that um, this whole idea of designing in, open, in the open, uh, designing for open source is still kind of new. So designers kind of don't think that they have a contribution to make here, but I think this is another thing that I'd like to open up and, and let people know that actually, no, this is one of the missing links we have in open source is there's some amazing software, but the UX is kind of shitty. So people is like, uh, struggle to use it or it just looks ugly. You know, it looks like something from the 1990s and immediately your brain is like, this can't be as good as Premiere. Look, it looks all weird. But then it's like, but you know, Blender, that's an open source thing. <laughs> right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. I think there's, the, oh. I think there's something there that, um, that we should do something about. Absolutely. Um, I, you know, I worked for a software company previously that, that we, we made software on VB6 and it was in the 20 teens still. Um, you know, the experience is a little bit locked down at some point, right? You're so far into the software that you're not going to make a huge change, but it, it was great for me to be able to make positive changes to make the experience easier for my users there. And I think open source needs the same thing. And there's UX people are so brilliant and the amount of knowledge that they have and the amount of, you know, understanding of how people use software is incredible to me. And I learn I learn things every day from the UX designers that I work with now. And yeah, if you're if you're somebody who studies UX or has even just studied it on your own and you get that that kind of grasp of how to make things more seamless and easier and more accessible for people, especially accessibility is a huge topic these days. Um, and in the open source space, I think that's a win when you have really accessible applications, but also applications with a greater user experience are going to just knock it out of the park. I agree. There, there are some applications that look like they are from the 90s, um, but some of those are the most powerful applications too, because they've had such longevity that you almost have to just say, I'm going to forgive <laughs> the user interface just because I can do so much with it. Um, th there's some that 
yeah, they could use a facelift, but without somebody there to kind of tell the developers, hey, you know, this could be better. And without developers being open to that input too, you know, it's it's not like you can just say, hey, I'm just going to give you a CSS style sheet and it's going to look amazing. It takes work and it takes effort, but I think for the projects that really want it, they're going to they're going to get there and they're going to accept that input and they're going to try to make those fixes. And I actually had a great experience with a, I did one on a, on a project called Databag. It's still pretty new, but it's a it's intended to be an encrypted chat system that you can federate. Um, it was pretty cool and, and the use, it was very new still. And I, I told him, Hey, I'm covering this on my channel because there's, there's ripples that happen when you do that, no matter who you are. But if you're a creator and you have a decent amount of audience, which I think at the time I had 50,000, you know, subscribers. So count about 5% of those would watch the video at some point, but, um, they do jump over and start looking at those projects and start adding issues really fast and it can overwhelm people. But the uh, the developer is great because I said, hey, I'd love to see it, you know, make it a little bit easier. It took me a while to kind of fumble my way through how to set things up. And I gave him a few, um, you know, just quick mock-ups and, and walkthroughs on how it, you know, how I thought it would work better. And he was super receptive and he's added almost everything I handed him to that software to make it easier to federate, easier to add users, easier to start new chats and things like that, you know. And he just admitted, he's like, I'm not a UX person. He's like, I'm a developer. And, and he was straight with me, he, he just 100% was super appreciative of the, of the feedback I was giving him. And I love to see that. I love, I love to be able to contribute anything I can to open source. I, I, I'm a developer as a hobby and hobbyists might even be pushing it, but, um, any other way that I can contribute, I, I want to. So, so that's, uh, that, that was great to be able to, to give a little bit of help on that one. But yeah, yeah. UX is huge. Yeah, no, 100%. And I agree with the accessibility aspect also. I'm like a big uh, web accessibility evangelist as well. So it's critical for me that, that I mean, I, I always say like one of the promises of the web is not only to connect all of us, but also to, um, by connecting us, create opportunity for all of us. And it really sucks if we exclude a whole bunch of people just because they aren't as abled as we are. You know, I think for me, Absolutely. almost sometimes I think like they could even benefit more because for them, oftentimes they've been excluded from the world simply because the world, the hardware world, you know, if you want to put it that way, wasn't quite yeah. set up for them. And so now this new thing comes in that's this digital platform. And now they're like, oh, come on, I'm being excluded here again. So it's always to me like, yeah. just just think about like the immense power that this has to, you know, and I think like there's quite a lot happening now and I'm glad it is. But I just, you know, it's one of those things like you have to keep talking about it because there's always somebody that hasn't hasn't heard about it. hundred percent. I mean, the the tools that they have today are what makes it, where I can do my job <clears throat> because most people with good vision send you a, a word document. That's got the tiniest font on earth for me, for anybody else. They could sit back across the room and read it probably. But for me, being able to enlarge the font, being able to zoom in on the screen, being able to do anything that I do really makes a difference in my experience and, and how I feel at the end of my work day. Um, and the tools that are out there for that are incredible, but the, the, the capabilities, are definitely things that people have to think about building in. And, and I give a lot of the big companies credit, Apple, Google, you know, when you look at their devices, they have, they have just really, I mean, on the first iPhones and the first Android phones, accessibility wasn't even a thought. Uh, you know, these days it's, it's a huge part of what they have built in and they, they really try to see like, what can we do to make this an accessible platform for everybody? And I love that. Um, I think, Microsoft has done a really good job too. I'm yeah. not a huge Microsoft fan, but on the accessibility front, they've done a mm. really great job. I had to have a shoulder surgery 
uh, about 15 years now, about 10 years ago. And uh, I was really worried because I type a lot all day for my job. And uh, I was like, I don't know what I'm going to do. And, and I had a Windows 7 machine and I thought, okay, let me go try out what their text, you know, their speech to text can do. And I was blown away by, by how great it was because I'd tried JAWS years earlier with my dad who was visually impaired. And, uh, you know, training it was really hard uh, to, to understand what you're saying. And this, I didn't have to train at all. It just, it just took off and started doing what I wanted. I could tell the system to do everything with my voice and I didn't have to worry about not being able to use my arm, you know, for mousing and typing and things. It was uh, really impressive, really tremendous. And, and I love to see that the world's headed that direction, but it's something like you said, we have to keep it always at the front of what we're doing. And, and open source, I, I think is still a place where that needs to be a, a, a concept that's at the front of the mind as you're building mm -hmm. out your software. For mm -hmm, sure. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And um, yeah, I think it's also this idea, like what you just mentioned, where it's people always, or um, well, not always, I shouldn't say that, but people often associate um, accessibility disabilities with a permanent state. And there's this mm -hmm. like, no, it can be a, uh, what do they call it, like, um, in the moment, you like the whole example, sure. if you have a baby in one arm, so now you only have one hand, that kind of thing, or you're pushing yeah. a stroller. Um, but then also like you, you could have had an operation and now for a period of time, you only have one arm. What what are you going to do? You know, you can't do nothing right. for four weeks that, or six right. weeks no. or whatever the case. So, yeah. you know, just the fact that, that you don't see yourself being disabled permanently or you weren't born with a disability, that doesn't mean that it can't impact you at some point in your life. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Well said. And so uh, home labs. Yeah. I dig it. And I, so I, I when I sent you the, the, the note about this one, I said, I love the idea. And that, and afterwards I thought like, no, it's, <laughs> that came across incorrect. Um, I love it point blank. Like I love it. But for me, the challenging thing has been uh, budget, like even Raspberry Pis sure. and then the other ones, mm -hmm. mini PCs. And I hear people talk about all kinds of different ones. I saw some, the mini PC I learned from reading the comments in one of your videos where somebody's like, oh, I can't believe you didn't mention that. And I was like, well, yeah. I mean, you know, you can't mention each <laughs> and every little piece of hardware that exists. But um, yeah. So for home labbers, as, I, as I've now called it, um, who is interested in this, but who are like budget sensitive, do you have like any advice? Like, where do you start? What is like the simplest, most cost effective way you can get into this thing? Yeah, you know, I, I, I'm fortunate. I, I've, uh, I've, I've made good money and I've, I've been able to, you know, spend a little bit here and there. I make a plan all the time, right? And I tell my wife like, hey, I want to get this in the next year or so. And, and then, you know, I save for it, right? And if something comes up, it comes up, oh, well, right? You need new tires for the car. You need new tires for the car. But um, yeah, home labs can be an expense for sure. And, and it's not just the expense of the hardware. You know, like I've got servers behind me that I, I bought one and I was so lucky to have a viewer who said, hey, I've got a couple of servers that I'm not using anymore. Would you like them? And he was close enough for me to drive and meet him. And, and, you know, pay them a little bit. And I got some really great hardware out of the, out of the deal. And, um, but they're, they're power hogs. They, uh, you know, they use a lot of power too. So, you know, power efficiency is another cost concern that you need to think about. If you're going to run these things 24 seven, they're going to use up power and you're going to have to pay for that. If you're going to, if you're going to keep things cooled off in the room where you put them, that may cost you more money because they heat up my room. I literally never have to turn on my heater that's up here, uh, because they keep the room so warm. Uh, so yeah, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a concern for everything. But uh, the place I started was I had a laptop and it was a laptop I used. And I just said, okay, let me see what I can do to upgrade this thing a little bit. And I spent a little bit of money on upgrading it to get an SSD that was a little bit bigger 
and some RAM. But even with what I had, I could have started. You don't have to have a huge, massive server. You don't have to have a server rack. You don't have to have a dedicated machine even. You can run things right on the machine that you're using every day. You just need to be cognizant of, okay, what is this going to do for the other things I want to do? If this is if this is a machine like this one where I edit my video, I may not want to run a lot of other services running that are using up RAM and, and cycles because video is a little bit heavy. Um, but if I'm if I'm like, you know, this is just my machine where I sit down and browse the internet and I may do a few documents and things like that, then it's probably a great place to start and really start building up your home lab from there. And then you've got direct connection to it. You're not trying to figure out how to do SSH over to a terminal. You're not, you might have a GUI in front of you that makes it a little bit easier. You're not trying to set up a whole bunch of weird IP addresses around your network. You're not having to figure out your networking yet. You're just going to use your, your main machine with local host. And uh, honestly, I think that's a brilliant way to start because it lets you ease in, lets you pick the things you want to try and see how they run and what, what kind of resources they use and gives you an idea like, okay, if I want to build this out, what do I need to start looking for for the next phase? And, and where do I need to start saying like, okay, I'm, I'm going to save up. I'm going to do this or, you know, I'm going to see what's out there, uh, you know, for, for cheap on eBay. The other thing is really watch things in your area, whatever's the big, I guess, digital selling marketplace where sometimes they have stuff for free because schools get rid of hardware. And they want to get rid of it and, and they just want somebody to come pick it up to get out of their way sometimes. Your local government might be getting rid, of, getting rid of hardware and they want to just have somebody come get it out of the way sometimes. Now, they may not have hard drives or they may not have other things, right? They take things out for security purposes, but but the, the meat of it, I mean, it could be a 15-year-old server and it's going to serve you in a home lab incredibly well. I mean, these are not new servers. These are really, really old servers, right? But they do a great job serving my home lab. Um, many PCs are a really good thing to look at. They're fairly inexpensive, but they're, they're not cheap, but they're, you know, they're less expensive than a server, but they have a lot of power these days. Single board computers, like you mentioned, the Raspberry Pi. If you've got the money to, to, you know, invest in a couple of those to, to at least start playing with, you can do a lot with them. They're, they're actually super powerful when you're just talking about the home lab experience. But yeah, I mean, I'd say if, if you're really budget conscious, the machine in front of you is probably a great place to start. I mean, that's, that's where I started. And I built out probably six or seven services that I was running on that thing. And I ran them for like three or four years and finally said, okay, I need to move that stuff over to something different because that, that device was just getting a, a bit out of, out of spec for even running those things. But yeah, I mean, huge place to start that they can save you a ton. Yeah, that's a very good point. Um, I kind of started with this old MacBook, like 2013, um, but I, I don't know. Yeah. I, I ran into this weird thing with Linux where it's um, I have this crazy screen flashing going on. Everything seems okay, but there's this weird flashing, and I've done some reading up about it. And there's this. I've tried a couple of things, and I got a little bit better, but then it gets worse again. It, it, apparently, it has hmm. something to do with the driver and Mac, and just being weird. So I don't know, but. Um, the other thing that, that the other option one has, of course, is to say, okay, well, brr, let me get something in the cloud, but then I'll use open source software on there. That's not, we're yeah. not in the home lab space here because now the server is not right. in your home. It's external to you, but maybe you're saying like, oh, but I just want to get off of some of these big tech companies having all of my things. So I'd like to do it myself. The problem with that I ran into there is twofold. One was the costs actually crept up pretty quickly <laughs> i was running next cloud yeah. and i was running mattermost oh, yeah 
And I was running, yeah. uh, I even ran my own little Mastodon instance. I vastly underestimated what a Mastodon instance needs in terms of space, yeah. but then in terms yeah. of maintenance. So that got a bit much for me. So I took the Mastodon one down. Um, and then the next cloud one was, it's still there, but I'm like, uh, I'm not sure of it. Cause it's so attractive when you then look at Google drive and it's like so cheap right. compared to it. And I'm like, mm, man, um, yeah. but maybe, maybe those things are better in a home lab situation. What would you think? Like something I, like next cloud. I'm thinking yeah. next cloud specific here. So for my VPS, uh, I use DigitalOcean. Um, I've, I've had a good, good, good experience with them, but Linode, Hertzner, uh, Hetzner, maybe I'm saying it wrong, Hetzner, maybe, I can't remember, but uh, Volter, you know, there, there's tons of them out there. Um, any of them are good if, if that's who you like, right? Oracle free tier, if you want to go sign up for an account with Oracle and use one of their free ones to kind of get things started is is nice. And, and a VPS is a great way to, to and I say self-host because there's a lot of people who don't, think that that's self-hosting, but I think it is when you control it and you're the one setting it up, it's just using somebody else's, you know, VM to do it. But at least you're kind of saying, I want to take my, my data back and try to hold on to my data a little bit. Um, things like Nextcloud are definitely going to be better in the home lab just because it's, it's a lot less expensive to size up your storage space at home um, over time versus what it's going to cost you in a cloud, uh, you know, environment. So if you can, if you can limit what you're putting in something like Nextcloud pretty well, then it may not be too bad. But for me, like, I, I mean, I use Nextcloud to, to store backups of different things on a, a lot of machines in my home. My kids, you know, have it. My wife has it. My mom has it. You know, everybody in the house really, you know, can use the Nextcloud server. So for me, that would be a pretty fast growing expense over time. Um, but, but definitely like, yeah, Mastodon, when you when you wrote that in the, in the questions, I was like, "Oh my gosh!" Like he really he he hit a hard one right off the bat because I, I've heard people say how how tedious it is, and I was like, "I don't want to do that. I just haven't even tried to tackle it yet." Um, but yeah, that's another one. Federated applications in general, once you federate, will use up multitudes more space because it's pulling a lot of that information over to your server. It's not actually like just going out and grabbing it every time. So it's a it's a massive change. Matrix is the same way. When you federate with Matrix, you can jump you know very quickly from megabytes of data to terabytes of data, depending on how many things you're you're federating with. Um, yeah. Next cloud yeah. has federation, right? Federation is the big big word for the day or word of the year, right? But it's it's also you have to think about what is it really going to do to me whenever I start start kicking that in. So yeah, I mean, next cloud. You know, matter most, just depending on how much chat you have going, it, it could get to be pretty big, pretty fast. I haven't run that one. Rocket Chat does grow over time. I, that's the one I run for my uh, discussion server. And uh, it, it's similar. And, and again, Federation is built in if you want to federate and things like that. But um, yeah, I mean, yeah, you pick some you pick some tough ones for for using a VPS for for sure. So it can it can it can creep up pretty quick. And um, I try to be cognizant of what I run there. Really, what I use my VPSs for is more of my, my VPN servers. Um, that way, it's not dependent on my home internet connection being up for me to be able to access my VPN and and do other things that I want to do over the VPN. Um, I'm not I'm not hoping that my servers haven't gone wonky and, and shut down for some reason or that there's not a power outage. Right? It's it's really when it's up in that cloud that you've got that much more constant connection that you can have for, for whatever you might need, regardless of what's going on with your home lab. So 
I, I tend to use that for those things. Email is another one. If you're going to run your email server, uh, definitely you want something with a fixed IP address and you want something with a unblocked IP address that's already not blocked or otherwise you're going to have a really hard time. The thing is most VPS providers these days don't, they don't support mail servers anymore because they had so many people just come in and get their entire uh, set of IP addresses on the block lists. You know, you're setting up spam servers really quick and just yeah. killing them again. And yeah. Um, yeah. But yeah, I mean, for, for me, that's, that's, uh, I, I guess I got grandfathered in under DigitalOcean before they pulled that. So I'm, I'm very lucky and I just keep that one server running, but yeah, it's a, uh, yeah, VPS is a trick for sure. If you think about cloud, like you mentioned VPN, um, like what are some of the things that you would run in, in the cloud? So with the VPN, is there a specific one you use and like what other types of applications would you run on a, on a cloud VPN server, VPS server? Sure. Yeah. So I, I do use, I use WireGuard just in the back background. Um, I've, I've used NetMaker to set up my WireGuard networks in the past. It's a really great open source tool that, that, uh, that's fairly new. It's been around for a couple of years now, but it's got a really nice server interface for really setting up all your networking and things. It's really, really great. Um, and they've got a nice script that helps you get it kind of set up pretty quickly. So, so I've done that one. I've uh, just did a video not long ago on a head scale and tail scale client. So head scale is the open source version of the tail scale control server, which is not open source. But Tailscale does make their clients open source, so you can use their clients with the Headscale server. And um, I've been playing with that one here lately. And uh, for me, the VPN is more about flattening out a, a very distributed network across the internet. So it makes it feel like I'm, I'm on a local area network with other machines that I have to access, which is the whole idea of a VPN. But at the same time, WireGuard has just really, the speed that you get from it is so close to almost your full you know, internet connection speed, it's great. Uh, OpenVPN is great, but it does, you, you do see like a huge drop in your connection speeds over that one. Um, WireGuard, just the way that you can lay things out, it does that peer-to-peer -peer connection, I think is one of those reasons. So HeadScale and TailScale have been really good. I've been testing that one. I'm doing another one right now called NetBird that I was I was requested by the company to check it out and see what it's what's going on with it. And it's, a, it's another open source option. So I'm kind of excited to see how it does. But um, for me, what I'm accessing is is really... I do a little bit of side IT work for a couple of clients and I can access their systems remotely and do that work remote without having to drive over there all the time. And if they call me, you know, with some problem, I can just jump on and see what's going on and usually fix it without having to go down there. And it saves them time. It keeps them up and running and it saves me time having to drive somewhere and, and go do that. And I don't drive, my wife drives, so it saves two of us time. <laughs> so she didn't have to take me over there. Um, but yeah, like cloud-based stuff, um, definitely email. I run a Jitsi server for my local Linux users group uh, that I started about 10 years ago. And uh, we all meet remote these days. Uh, we, we had a physical place to meet and then I moved away from that city, but I still met with them remote. And then when the pandemic happened, everybody went remote and um, the physical place we had, the, the business got sold. So we all meet remote now and it's it's fun. It's, it's only four or five of us usually in any given month, but we have a really great conversation and we talk Linux and open source. And it's just, you know, a bunch of guys talking nerdy stuff and kind of letting each other know what they what they learned in the last month. So it's a. Uh, it's fun, but yeah, I mean, that's a, that's a great thing to run is, is something like a Jitsi server, a turn server. I run my own turn server uh, using co-turn and then email uh, and then VPN. Definitely. Uh, I think VPS is ideal for those things because it gives you that really great bandwidth. It gives you that capability to make sure you've got a good connection. And again, it's not dependent on my home systems being 
on and running. It's it's really just oh, if the cloud's up and running, it's it's good. So yeah, that's uh that's just my take on it. Cool. Um, so you mentioned head scale and tail scale there. So I wanted to dig into those two a little bit. So how, first sure. of all, maybe we should dig into exactly what what they are. I think most people that listen to this will know, yeah. but let's assume people don't. Um, so yeah. what is the interplay between head scale and tail scale? And like, what's the use case? Like, why would you reach for one of these? Okay. So, I mean, uh, a VPN is virtual private network and uh, these Tailscale uses a, a protocol called WireGuard that was created a few years ago that's very fast and well encrypted and it lets you do peer to peer. So instead of having to go through a relay node and then back to wherever you're trying to reach, it just creates a connection between two systems whenever it can and you're really having a direct connection. So it, you know, when you're on your home network, you're on a special network called a LAN, your local area network. And all the machines on that network can usually talk to each other unless you set up some special things. But most, you know, the average user just has a flat network there. But if you want to reach out to somebody across the internet, like a family member or a friend or a business that you're doing work for, then something like WireGuard or a VPN of any kind is is a benefit to you. And Tailscale is a company that used WireGuard to build up a business. And they basically said, hey, we're going to make this as easy as we can. So we're going to run the hard part, the server for you. And then we're going to make some clients that will, once you install it, all you have to do is tell it to connect and then authenticate with your user information. And you're going to have a connection right up to the server and it's going to know who your machine is. And then when you connect another one, those two machines can talk now. Connect your phone. Oh, it can talk to those machines too. Connect your, you know, your tablet, connect your whatever devices, right? You want to connect two networks together? Oh, you can do that too. And we've made it really easy through our user interface to do that. Um, and it's awesome. I think Tailscale is incredible. And if somebody's looking for the easy way to do it, um, they're one of those places that it'd be like smart for you to go check out what they've got. You, you know, you can use it for free for a while. They've got some free level um, offerings, which is cool. Uh, they do not pay me, by the way. <laughs> um NetMaker is another one that does very similar things, you know, set up the server. Now that one, you you can run your own server or they can host one for you. But same idea, right? Like they they, they do the hard part for you and give you some really great ways to do some easier things, which I, I really like. Um, but yeah, I mean, these VPNs are, are great for connecting to people securely instead of, you know, taking chances and kind of using these apps that you're not really sure what it's doing in the background. You hope that it's maybe secure, but you're not 100% sure. These are those apps where people have looked at it and they're looking at the code all the time and they're saying, yeah, this is going to be secure and it's going to be between the two of you. There is no middleman other to make that original connection and then it's it's between the two of you and that's it. So I really, I love that concept of being able to do that. And and really it's, a, for me, I, I use head scale and tail scale as an always on connection. I, I don't even turn it on on my machines. Like when I boot my machines, they just connect to it and it's there and I don't have to think about it. Um, some people like to turn it off and then turn it back on and you can do those things, you know, but I just leave it up. It's not doing anything through the network that I don't want it to do. And, and you can tell it which traffic should go through the VPN and which traffic should just go through your regular network. And it's, um, yes, it's a tremendous way to, to do work, to connect directly to other locations across the internet that you might want to connect to. Um, maybe your, maybe your friend is running a Jellyfin server and he says, Hey, if you'd like to check out some of my media, you can. The best thing to do is set up a VPN using one of these technologies and then access that server that way, because then you're not, he's not opening it up to the world and, and not everybody can try to hit it and get his media and get him in some kind of trouble. Right. Um, 
there's there's all kinds of really great reasons that you might want to use a, a, a VPN like that and a WireGuard VPN is just it's going to have that speed that you want for transferring media, for instance, or um, maybe you're trying to do a remote desktop session. Another one where you want you know you want a little bit of speed, so it's not a really laggy connection and things like yeah, that. Too. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's super cool. So I I also know that I think it's Jared Sento um, from the guys from Changelog. Um, what he does is when they go camping, um, he connects to his uh, Plex server at home through Tailscale, and so then instead of having to use like um, you know Netflix or one of these streaming services, like he's got his own little streaming service, and these are DVDs. Yeah. That he bought, that he then rips and puts on That's his right. Plesk server. So there's nothing illegal yeah. happening here. It's all above board. But yeah, he doesn't have to connect, doesn't have to use Netflix or anything, and they can watch whatever they want whenever they want it. It doesn't go away. You know, today you yeah. can watch the movie. Next week it's like, oopsie, it's no longer there. Um, it's always there. That's right. The other cool That's thing, right. and that's something I want to do because I don't know, it seems like I choose the hard things to do. Um, is one of the things you can do with Tailscale is you can host your blog, for example, and serve it from your local machine. So I was thinking, the, the MacBook I told you about, I was thinking of making that my little server and serving my blog through that. Because that that's just fascinating, the idea for me that I'm hosting my blog right behind me. It's just, I don't know, it sounds fun. So that's something it, that it's I... It's great. I haven't done it yet, but I want to do it. Yeah. Yeah, you're you're opening up access to the world without opening up your network to the world, which is the the best thing, right? Because exactly. these are things that where there's you don't have to go when you when you have that server outside of your network, you don't have to go open ports and things like that on your firewall, which is much more secure than trying to open up a bunch of ports to let traffic you know flow through that needs to. So, yeah, it's definitely a it's a huge way to go and and a, and a much more secure way to go too. So yeah, I love that idea. That that's that's awesome. And I got that idea from, uh, I think she's called Bash Bunny on YouTube. Um, she made a video where she uh, took also an old MacBook and she like mm -hmm. turned it into, into a server and she used Tailscale and she's serving her blog from it. So I was like, that's so cool. I want to do it nice. too. So, and this, what that's I learned awesome. when, I, when I looked at this Mac is this is still from the age where you can open the thing. Like you could, there's little yes. screws at the bottom that you can, what? Because <laughs> I saw she like replaced her hard drive. Yeah. I was like, you can't open a Mac. And then I turned this one over and it's like, you can open a Mac. Not any, not today. Yeah. Although maybe we will be able to again because Apple said they're going to like do the whole right to repair thing. So it sounds like yeah. not in too distant future, we'll be able to open our Macs again and and upgrade our, our own RAM and our own hard drives, SSDs and all these kinds of things. That would be nice. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> that, would, that would be awesome. I, I love Mac hardware. I use a, I use an iMac in, in the other room. It's the 2010 model iMac, uh, 27 inch, but I upgraded it myself and it still runs better than a lot of the machines that I, that I get from my workplaces that are brand new. I mean, just because it's, it's such good hardware, just upgrading the, the, the specs on it just made it run tremendously well. Now it's it's getting a little bit where it can't run games and things that are fairly new, but it does a it does a really great job with with most stuff. So yeah, terrific hardware. Upgrading it, yeah, that 2013, you know, bit of replace the hard drive and maybe upgrade the RAM a little bit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah you'll have a, a really <laughs> badass machine. It'll last you another five or six years. <laughs> exactly, exactly. Because it's like it's so yeah. sad. This thing still looks beautiful and new. It's like it doesn't make sense for me to like just put it in the closet or something like it's yeah. something I must be something I can do. And then I, yeah. Um, so 
about three months ago, I think, if, if YouTube's correct with the date, you made a video, um, and I found this when I looked at your profile stuff on LinkedIn. I like saw you posted it there, and then I went and I watched the video, and I was like, we have to talk about this. Um, and it's a video called Giving Up an Open Source. It wasn't you giving up an open source, but it was a, a, something you read on the subreddit, the open source subreddit. Mm-hmm. Um and basically reflecting on how attitudes and bad behavior um, can negatively impact open source. And like, wow, I mean, that that's like right in my wheelhouse. Having been involved in open source for so long and, and working closely with community, I've seen that um, if you if your first experience of open source is a toxic open source project, you will never come back. Because, That's you know, right. so for me, it's like thinking about this and thinking about how can this be as welcoming as possible for as many folks as possible. And so I'd just love for you to just talk about it a little bit, because I think you've talked about it really eloquently in the video. So if you just want to share maybe your thoughts around this topic, I would that'd be lovely. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, you know, I, I prowl the subreddits and, and, you know, more Mastodon these days and Lemmy. But yeah, I mean, it, I still prowl around and look and. I just happened to be on the open source subreddit and I saw this question where somebody says, you know, is it bad to abandon my open source project? And I thought, well, that's a, that's not a great question. So what's, what's this guy talking about? And he, you know, he went into some detail and I read it and I thought, oh, that's, you know, it's painful. Um, you know, so he has, he had an open source project. It got covered by a channel like mine uh, on YouTube and, and a bunch of people rushed over to see it and start using what he was making. And I, I don't know what the project was. I don't know him. I, you know, I just saw his, his handle from Reddit didn't go look him up or anything, but in in the process of people liking what he was doing, they started making demands of him instead of, you know, doing things in a, in a friendly way, in a proper way, in a way that says, Hey, I appreciate what you're doing. And I, you know, I told you in the beginning, I was a cop for 10 years. And when you're a police officer, you see people at their worst every single day and people at the worst moments in their lives every single day. So that can start to stick with you and kind of get stuck in your head of that's how people are. And, and coming out of that, that's how I was. And I had to remind myself, like, people in general are are good and have good intentions. Um, and I, I imagine, I can't speak for the people who are doing these things, but I imagine most of the people that he was, you know, getting this pressure from really had the best intentions and liked his project and, and were excited about it. But they weren't going about letting him know that in the right way. And someone was being a bit demanding of, you know, you should go buy a Mac so you can build a Mac version of this. And like, that's, that's not an inexpensive purchase. You know, I mean, this is somebody who started a project that was a passion project. Most open source projects start off as a passion project. Like this is something I'm interested in building because I didn't see it anywhere else. So I'm going to go and build it. And then if it gets popular, suddenly everybody wants it. And now you've got this pressure. So it, it is kind of a scary thought of, okay, I do this on my own, on my own time, on the side, from my regular full-time job, from my family, from from maybe a second job, just depending on the person, right? And and then people are sitting there going, hey, you need to do things faster. Hey, you need to do things better. Hey, you need to build this for Mac. And why aren't you doing that? And, and you need to go buy a Mac. And I'm like, yeah, that's that's not a that's not the right attitude. I think again, I hope that it was really coming from excitement for what he was making. But it for him, it was really getting him down and, and making him feel terrible about open source, which I don't want because once, like you said, once somebody has that experience, they're not going to want to come back. So from a community perspective, I was really just trying to let people, you know, kind of remind people like, Hey, go say, thank you. You know, don't forget to say, we appreciate what you're doing. If you can't do it with your wallet, that's okay. That's part of open source, but 
if you can go, go give them 50 cents. And I mean, I was telling them at the time, like I have a hundred thousand subscribers. If every one of them would go give 50 cents to an open source project, that's $50,000 to, to, to tell somebody thanks for doing this, you know, and, and 50 cents, if people don't know what 50 cents is in the U S 50 cents is 51 hundredths of a dollar. That's a, you know, a little less than what it would cost you to buy a regular cup of coffee. It's about a 10th of what you need to go buy a <laughs> cup of, you know, Starbucks coffee, but, <laughs> um, <laughs> But I mean, yeah, you know, really 50 cents is, is just, it's a very small amount of money um, for most people in the U.S. So um, if if you were to go and give that, that, that's a huge thing. If you just go and tell somebody thank you, like you can't imagine how how amazing that is. And, and I'll be honest, um, I, I was looking around at some different discussion forums on a few open source projects that I follow um, that they just run on GitHub or on, on Reddit. And uh, in several of them, I saw people making requests, but first they said, hey, first thing, I just want to say thank you for this project. It is so awesome. Thank you for making it. I mean, just, and I mean, not just one, like uh, just in a couple of days, I, I noticed like 10 or 11 different places where people had done that. And I thought, yes, finally, it's, it's not just the, hey, I need you to go build this thing that, that you weren't even thinking about, right? It's this, hey, you know, thank you for this. And I had an idea and, you know, I wanted to throw it out here and it's not, it's the request, right? It's an enhancement request. It's not an enhancement demand. <laughs> so I, I just, I, I love that I saw that. It made me feel so good inside to, to see that over and over. Um, and, and, you know, to know that people are starting to really say, like, I need to say thank you before I do anything else when I, when I get on here. Um, I think that's incredible. And sometimes that's enough to keep somebody motivated to know that people appreciate what they're doing. Money's money's great. And everybody needs money because that's what makes the world go round, unfortunately, but you have to have it if you want to survive. Right. So remember that these guys are doing this stuff and it takes a lot of time and effort. Remember that even if you can't contribute with money, a thank you is a great thing to do. If you find something wrong, be a good steward of open source and, and learn how to report a bug properly. A lot of these places are now putting, you know, forms on their GitHub so that you know what information they really want. But if you'll learn what that is from each one and even for the ones who don't have the form, go put that kind of information and really give them good steps to reproduce what you're seeing. You'll see those bugs get fixed fast and the, and the people doing those projects will appreciate it because they'll say, I didn't have to spend seven hours trying to figure out <laughs> why you're seeing this weird thing, yeah, exactly, right? Exactly, um, exactly. Yeah, I mean, it's it's it should be a conversation. And I think it's it's just such a huge thing to, to make sure that we don't make people feel terrible in the open source world. We don't have enough people doing open source projects as it is, so we certainly can't afford to lose people who are doing them. And making sure that we say thank you, making sure that we know that we're letting them know that they're appreciated I guess is the best way to say it. That, that's a huge thing. If you can, if you can contribute in other ways, like you said, UX, if you're a UX person, go help them with UX if they need it. If you know about accessibility and you can help them, go help them with accessibility. If you know anything that can help that project, go help them out. If you're, if you're a product manager, go help them figure out a roadmap if they don't seem to have one. If you're, you know, if, if you're just a guy who loves software, go ask if you can help test the next beta version. Right. I mean, exactly. Just, just do something that contributes and you're going to feel great. The project is going to do well. The people that are really putting all their effort and time and, 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 and passion into that project are going to want to keep doing it. And for me, that's that's one of the reasons I do this channel is like I want people to live open source. 
And uh, it's important to know that it's it's out there. And it's important to know that it's available, but it's also important to know that somebody put a lot of effort into, into anything that I show. Um, so let them know <laughs> that you appreciate it. Yeah. Go, go yeah. say thanks. Yeah, yeah. Well said. Well said. Love that. And um, I, I like the little thing like, so, uh, um, so I get up universe just passed and I have mixed feelings about it, but leaving that aside, uh, I love the little things I did recently. And one of the things was in the comment box, it says, write a comment, comma, be kind. That's a yeah. little small thing, but I can guarantee you that's going to make people just for pause for a moment and maybe reconsider yeah. what they were going to write. So I think it, I think we we also and that's I I bet you that was like a UX thing, um, where somebody was like, let's just add that into the placeholder text and see what the impact of that is. And that that yeah. is those little UX things that can make such a difference. Um, yeah, but well said. I 100% agree with everything. Like um, having done quite a few things in open source, like getting an email from somebody that says like the fact that you helped me through this pull request and I landed it and it was such a great experience. Thank you so much. I can't wait to contribute again. Reading that is like your whole week is made. It's like you would you just hit the jackpot. It is an incredible feeling. So I totally agree. If you can't financially support people and you don't have the skills where you think you don't have the skills to contribute in some other way, like just write a thank you. That that goes a long way. Uh, you know, the comments are hard, right? Issues are hard on GitHub. I, I tell people, I, I try to answer every comment that I get on YouTube, and I can't always answer them because I don't understand the context and I don't want to say something that's not going to be helpful. I don't want to just say thanks when somebody's asking a question. <laughs> like, um, so if I can't answer it, sometimes I don't. And it's just because I don't really know what to write. But sometimes I'll say, I'm not understanding what you're asking. You know, could you clarify? And they will. Sometimes they don't come back. It just depends. But um, even the ones that come in in a different language, I will 100% go try to do a Google Translate on that thing and then try to answer and translate it back and post it back for them in their language because I, I, I want them to have that interaction. But early on, I had a few people who were pretty you can read a comment in a lot of ways. Some comments you can 100% just understand exactly what they were feeling, but some comments you could read, you could read it angry or you could read it sad or you could read it depressed or you could read it happy. It's, it's all about what you get in here before you read, right? Um, but I had a few people who, who posted some not very friendly comments, but I answered and I try to always be positive when I, when I answer back. I try to be, I try to think about what I'm saying I try to make sure that I'm not going to get into some kind of weird trolling flame war. That's not why I'm here and I don't have time for that. But I, I do try to always be positive when I answer. I've had a few people who say, I, I'm so shocked that you answered my comment and that you were so polite about it. I'm, I'm subscribing. <laughs> and, you know, I, I turned them from somebody who didn't like what I did to a subscriber, which is great. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. But at the same time, I, I always try to read through comments and, and sometimes you just kind of get in your head like, well, this person was just really being rude. And then I try to go back and say, well, well were they or am I just reading it wrong? And, and you got to remember, I always tell people I don't speak English very well. I speak American <laughs> because my American English is pretty pitiful <laughs> a lot of times. But I always try to remember, too, that a lot of people who are sending me comments in English, that's their second language, maybe their third language or their fourth language. So they're already smarter than me. 
But that also means that maybe they have something that they said that they didn't, you know, they didn't mean for me to read the context of it that way. So I try to go back and really think about that. And then I try to answer and, and I always try to, to be positive. I tell my wife, I try to kill them with kindness, you know, and if that's not working, if they're still coming back and just being really rude, then I just, I stop having the conversation. Um, but that's happened probably one or two times in the four or five years I've been doing this now. Uh, I have a lot of people who come to my defense, you know, and, and I see those kind of back and forth going on. And I, if, if I feel like it's getting out of hand, I try to jump in and say, Hey, it's, it's all good guys. Like, let's just, let's just agree to disagree and, and move on with our day. It's, it's okay. Um, but yeah, I mean, I, I think the internet has emboldened people a, a bit because they do feel that disconnect that it creates and they feel like, well, I can say what I want to. And I think a lot of times people are emboldened to say things that they wouldn't say in person. Sometimes that's good. Sometimes not so much, but it, it definitely has an impact on the way that people react and the way that the open source community reacts. And, and I think again, kill them with kindness, just saying thank you is, is magical, you know, and, and I love the same as you, right? I get a comment where somebody goes, man, I've been trying to do this for months and your video helped me do it like that. I'm like, that's awesome. I love to hear that. Like, that's great that somebody got something good out of what I did. I, you know, even if it's just one person, that's one more than would have. So I'm always happy about that. But yeah. Yeah, no, for sure. Yeah, I agree. That's great. Uh, I, so, okay, let, let's jump into what I was called the podcast listicle. <laughs> so people like okay. these, these, these you know, <laughs> 10 best this, 10 things you should do before going to bed. Sure. So my question for you was, what is your top five favorite desktop apps and why? Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm going to go to my list here because I don't want to give you the wrong ones. I could go on forever about apps. Um, I, wrote the, I really thought about this because it was hard. That was a hard question. Um, so, okay. I've done a lot of videos. Now, most of my videos are on web-based applications and server-based applications, but uh, I would say for the desktop, Tabby is one that I use every single day for multiple hours a day. It's it's an incredible terminal terminal emulator, but it, it's an Electron app. So a lot of people didn't like it when I covered it. That that they're just they don't like Electron. Electron's a little heavy, I get it, but man, Tabby's just such a great app, and it gives me so much freedom. Um, it lets me put in all of my connections and save them, which is huge for me. It lets me create quick like scripts that I can just grab very fast and use very quickly and little snippets of, of different command line commands that I want to, you know, keep, but not forget that are a little bit complicated sometimes. So yeah, for me, it's, it's, it's really terrific. And, and the way that it connects and, and kind of lets you reconnect very quickly in the split panes and stuff like that really helps me get things done in an efficient way. So yeah, Tabby is definitely one that I use all the time. Um, shortcut because I make my, my videos, I use shortcut to edit my videos. Um, it's, it's, it's one of those tools that I think is underrated a lot of times because it's got some extreme power and capabilities. If you're willing to sit down and figure it out and learn it. Um, I use the most minimal bits of it, but it's really great and it's very stable. Um, I will say in the open source space, I've tried a lot of you know, several, not a lot, but probably four or five different video editors. And of those, that one's always been the most stable for me. Caden Live's pretty good, but then they'll have a release where it just 
doesn't land for some reason and it just kind of crashes here and there, but then they'll have one where it's back for a while. So I try not to jump around too much because it hits my workflow a bit and I try to get these things done quickly. Um, open shot. I love open shot, but I just, I have never been able to get it run smooth on my systems. I don't know if my systems are just too old, but I love the look of it because it looks so simple and so clean and so easy to use, but just never been able to, get it to run smooth on my systems. But yeah, so shotcut is definitely my video editor of choice and, and I use it all the time because because I'm constantly making content and getting ready to put it out there. Um, U-Launcher, I, I covered that one a while back and it's just a simple launcher, but I, I, you know, I'm, I'm from the Mac side of things too. So I'm very used to the spotlight launcher. And when they put it in the middle of the screen, it really became kind of that, you know, tool that I used a lot. So I was looking for something on Linux and, and U-Launcher seemed to fit the bill. And I don't use half of what it can do, but it, it does great for what I need. And it, it really um, speeds up my workflow quite a bit. So I, yeah, that one I use every day, all day. Um, Trillium notes, that's the other one. So Trillium, I moved over from um, another note application uh, back when I covered Trillium and the way that it handles the the kind of end levels of, of tree depth notes and, and linking of notes and things like that, I love it. It's just been a tremendous tool for me, especially because I keep all my show notes in that until I'm ready to post them on my, on my website. I keep work notes on it in a separate, you know, kind of place. I keep my home network diagrams in it. I keep, I just keep everything in it. It's such a useful tool for me. So yeah, that one's definitely a, a must have. And I, again, it's one that I open immediately when I sit down in front of the machine every day. So um, I love that one. My last one, it's not technically a desktop app, but I use it in, in Firefox every day and it's dashy. That's, that's my dashboard where I can access all of my services and all of my things that I, that I host. And I mean, a hundred percent use it all day, every day for doing all kinds of things. And it's just been a tremendous tool. And there's a lot of great ones out there, but that one's the one I've stuck with just because setting it up, the graphical user interface, the work that the developer did on it, she's just absolutely tremendous. And she's just done so much great stuff with it and it continues to evolve. So yeah, I love that about it. But Dashi's just been terrific. Yeah. That's, that, that that's going to be my top five. Yeah, that's awesome. That That is the one that I still want to set up is Dashi. You've got your video in my in my open source video list because I want to set that up as soon nice. as I do more of my home lab stuff so I can like monitor all these things. So I'm definitely looking forward to that. Um, so the a tool that I use, well, an app that I use that's like, I think you said Trillion or Trillion, something like that. Mm -hmm. um, I use one called AnyType. I don't know if you've seen that one, but... Um, I did, yeah. It, it just now got where you can... It just came out of beta, right? Yeah, Is yeah. That right? It's pretty new. It's yeah, pretty new. okay, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I was, yeah, I was, I was on their mailing list. I just haven't jumped to it yet. <laughs> yeah, I was using Notion, and then I was like, ugh, I don't know. I didn't, don't know how I feel about this. And then I was using... Um, doo -doo -doo, what's the one? Uh, Logseek for a while. And I don't know... Logseek, yeah. Yeah, I, I don't know why, but for some reason I just... I just didn't quite feel comfortable with it. And then I'd stumbled upon any type and so far has been great. And it's been able to, it was able to import everything from notion, like through the API and like nice. one shot. So I was just like, import everything, cancel notion account. <laughs> so now I've nice. got it. And I got it has awesome. this little cool graph that it shows you like how the nodes are interconnected. So I do everything in there. Yeah. So like you with, with that, it's like I just open it up and it's just full screened on my Mac in a separate space. And I just like four finger swipe over to it. And all my show notes That's are right. in there. Like to do's is in there. 
movies I want to watch. Like, it's such a useful thing. It's incredible that it's open source yeah. because they also, like, it's designed really, really nicely. It looks great. I got on their mailing list back when they were first talking about it. They were kind of posting about it on some of the subreddits. And I was like, okay, well, I want to go check this out. Well, you couldn't quite run it yourself yet. They had some betas where you could get in and do it. It's like, okay, well, I'm, I'm going to sign up for their mailing list to kind of keep track of it. And I, so I saw it when it went for beta. I saw it when they started pushing it out recently. They sent me some emails and stuff. I thought, okay, I've got to go try that. I just haven't, just haven't gotten to it on my list yet, but it sounds great. Yeah. And, and they've, it's been going for a few years, I think. Mm -hmm. So I, I would expect it to be pretty mature, which is awesome. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I'd love to see that kind of dedication to a to a project like yeah that. it's really yeah. good and and they've got some really nice videos on youtube also that introduces you to how to use it and that kind of stuff and they have like i still want to join those but i think monthly or something like that they have like these like community meetings where you can like hear what's on the roadmap oh, nice. and give your feedback so i really appreciate that so yeah no i'm enjoying yeah, that's it that's awesome I, i'm really enjoying it um in a similar way but on to the to the other side of it like are there any like apps, desktop, server, cloud, whatever that you haven't been able to find like an open source thing? But then in general, when you're like, okay, I've got this proprietary thing, it's cool and everything, but man, there's got to be an open source alternative. Like what, how do you go about finding and then evaluating things? I use this site called Open Source Alternative 2, um, which is pretty neat, but it it doesn't have everything because it itself is community-based. So, you know, it's only as good as how many people contribute to it. Um, but I'm curious, like, right. are there any things that you haven't found something for yet? And in general, how do you go about finding these things? So I can say, honestly, there's nothing yet that I haven't found an open source option for. Now, like we talked earlier, sometimes the closed source option is a bit more refined it's got funding behind it, things like that, that help it seem to move faster. But a lot of times the open source stuff catches up pretty quick. Um, but no, I haven't found anything yet that doesn't have an open source option. Now that said, <laughs> there's a difference between it has an option and it's usable for me. So I, uh, I'm a person that when I sit down at the computer, I want to get something done. And about seven or eight years back, I thought, I'm going to try Arch. Everybody's talking about Arch. I want to see what Arch is like. And for about two months, it ran great. And I went into my office one day and sat down and I, I ran the update like I always do. And it broke. And I thought, okay, what did I break? And it took me like 45 minutes to figure out what it was to get the system back up and running. And then I was out of time and I didn't even get to do what I sat down to do in the first place. And I thought to myself, okay, this, this isn't for me because I came in here to do something and now I can't even do it because I had to sit here fixing the system. So tell you that story to tell you, I, I do a lot of things. <laughs> I saw this movie called Renaissance Man way back when I was younger. And one of the lines that he said was this, you know, this guy was a, an athlete and a sculptor and a painter and a this and a that. And I thought, I want to do that. Like, I want to, I want to learn as much as I can in this life. And I, I learned slow. So it takes me for freaking ever to learn anything. So um, I, I learned how to play piano when I was a kid and I started creating music and writing music. And I just sometimes want to sit down and play piano. So I've got behind me, I've got my, my piano here and it's hooked up nice. to a Mac and I use GarageBand because all I have to do is plug in my piano, turn it on and start GarageBand and I can start playing. In the open source space, there are a lot of digital audio workstations. Um, I support the Ardour project monetarily every month or whenever they charge me. Um, I've used Ardour, but when I sit down at Linux and it took me like three weeks to figure out how to connect my keyboard controller, 
had to figure out, okay, Arger's there. Why is it not making sound? Okay, where do I get sounds from? Oh, what is this thing called Jack? Oh, how do I connect all this stuff together? Wait a minute, there's no sound coming out. <laughs> you know, it, it took me forever to really wrap my head around, like, how does all these things fit together? And really, Apple said, you don't have to worry about that. We've got this thing called GarageBand. Just, just click on piano and it'll sound like a piano. And I'm like, awesome. So for me, it's that thing of being able to sit down and start playing. When I come to sit down and do that, it's my time to relax and, and having to go through and fiddle and mess and figure out why it's not making sound today is just not one of those things that I was enjoying. So I'm waiting. So if anybody hears this and you know something that I'm missing that's open source that can do that, tell me. If it comes with 25 sets of instructions on how to make it do that, mm -hmm. we missed the mark. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. you know, um, yeah, I mean, that's that's really and truly the only one. I really scoured my brain like, okay, is there anything? And I thought, GarageBand. When I sit down to play the piano, that that is still the one that I, that I go to today because it is just so simple. Start the application. Start playing. I mean, that's that's the thing for me in, in that scenario. Um, everything else I've, I've found open source options for and, and I use um, where I find them. <laughs> so I didn't know about open source alternative two. So I'm glad you told me about that. Um, I do look at alternative two and then filter by open source sometimes to see what they have. Uh, there's some really good GitHub lists out there that people create like the awesome self-hosted list and, you know, things like that. So I, I check those out, you know, kind of see if they're getting updated pretty regularly. Uh, the self-hosted subreddit and the same version over on, on Lemmy. Um, I, I, I kind of scour those and, and read and see what people are trying, what they're looking at. Uh, open source on the same same platforms, you know, same thing. Sometimes I'm, I just Google and kind of see what I can find. Uh, and, and really, so far, there's always something out there. It's just about the, the barrier to entry, I guess, for me about how hard is it to get set up and then how hard is it to keep it going once I get it set up. Because I'm a person who, again, I just want my stuff to work. And if I can set it up in a way that it does that 99% of the time, I'm pretty happy. Um, if it's something that I have to come and, and tweak constantly, I'm probably going to look for another solution for it. But yeah, so far the open source world has had a, just everything I've, I've looked for except for the, the digital audio workstation that makes it super simple. Um, so yeah, that's, it's, that's my... Uh, that's my only downfall. Once once I get that one covered, that'll be it. Amazing. 100%. That is amazing. And that's why I yeah. think uh, channels like yours are so important because I think that is for a lot of people is is the thing, right? They want to be able, because they're so used to, what, you just take this thing, you drag it into applications and it just works. So, you know, as soon as you tell them, well, in this case, you're going to have to jump through a couple of loops to get there. And then some days it might yeah. just not work, even though it worked yesterday. I think... Those are kind of the trade-offs you sometimes make, and some people are just not willing to make those trade-offs. So, and I think right. some of that again, it, it's it's one of these situations where maybe it's not the open source maintainers' intent that things are so unstable. It's maybe they don't have the skills necessary to project manage this thing properly and say, "Hey, we can't push this release out because we aren't sure that it's stable." Maybe they don't have enough QA folks that can QA this thing and tell them, whoa, That's no, right. this is not ready for prime time. This thing has got some funky stuff going on. You know, so it's it's, it's all those things. It's like I, I've 
I cannot imagine that there are maintainers. It's just like, ah, whatever, just push it out and break everybody's world. I don't think that's the case. I think it's 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 this thing. There's, there's just gaps that needs to be filled. And we need to explain to people that, yes, you are welcome. You are, you are, and you are too. Because all your skills add up to what what's needed. Like if you look at a, a, a big tech company, like open source projects needs all those things pretty much also, you know? So I think... I think it's incredible that you're doing all this stuff and you're talking about it and all these things. I think it's, it's, it's amazing. Uh, you know, I, I appreciate it, but uh, yeah, the, uh, <laughs> the funny thing is, is I agree. I don't think open source maintainers say, yeah, if it breaks them, it breaks them. Right. I, I think in a lot of cases, if you're, especially if you're looking at a small project or a one man project, he's testing it on his machine. He might have a couple of virtual machines that are set up a little different to try it on. But, you know, once you get past that, if you've got a different setup and it doesn't work, he probably doesn't even realize that that's happening. That's that's where you come in as a person who can report that and, and make it a good bug report of like, here's what I did. Here's what hardware I'm using. Here's my you know versions of everything. And here's what I see. Right. Let let them know how to reproduce that or let, help them get the logs and things like that. Um but yeah, I, mean, I, I doubt that there's any maintainers out there like, well, I mean, it works for me, right? That's that's the old developer mantra. It works on my machine, <laughs> you know. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. It's a, it's 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 that thing. I, I doubt that there's any that are out there doing that. They're they're out there. They want to know, and they'll fix it if you can help them. But they they need help too. Yeah, absolutely. What you said. I mean, they they need that team that can do all of those different jobs. Hundred percent. Yeah, and I mean, even when it's like for a specific like EQ Mac, I use that, and <clears throat> it crashes. Sometimes the, the like little, so it needs to sit in the middle between your normal audio output and, you know, so sometimes that disconnects and you have to close it, reopen it, that kind of thing. And this, it's quite a little, it's quite unstable. But the thing is, I'm running like a MacBook Air um, M2. That's not necessarily what the person is developing on. And maybe on their like Intel CPU, it's, chugging along nicely, but there's something about the M2 architecture that's throwing it for a loop. And so I need to tell the person that. So they're like, oh, uh, and then it's it's hard now because now he needs to tell me like, oh, have you tried this, that, and the other thing? Because he can't, like you'd mentioned before, this I can't expect this person to go out and buy an M2 just to, you know, like now it's it's kind of my responsibility to help along and hope that there's other people with M2s that saying, hey, me too, by the way. So I'm also happy to test some stuff out if you want me to try something. And that's how we're going to get it to a place where it's like, hey, man, now it works on M1, M2, it works on Intel chips. It's, it's great. Um, but yeah, we all have to do our little part and be a little bit more forgiving and a little bit kinder to each other so that we can have like great open source software. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, Brian, it was amazing to meet you. You're, you're a super nice person. I can speak to you forever. <laughs> but alas, um, we all have to do other things also. So in closing, I would love for you to just like tell people where can people find you? How can people support you and all the things? Yeah. yeah. So they can absolutely find me on YouTube um, at Awesome Open Source is the channel. And they can find me on the Fediverse, on Lemmy, um, and on Mastodon. Uh, so I use the, uh, I'm, I'm at MickNTX, so M-I-C-K-I-N-T-X, uh, at Fostodon.org. So if you want to find me, that's where I'm where I'm at over there. Um, and then, 
yeah, uh, Patreon. I have a Patreon channel. So awesome open source is, is Patreon. If you want to support me that way, I always appreciate it. It's one of those things where I'm always surprised that people want to support me on Patreon, but I'm always so thankful that they do because it really, it makes a huge difference and it helps me keep going and, uh, you know, makes that, that worth it. So, um, and I, and I give that money back to the open source community as much as I can. So I support, I can't even keep count of how many things I support. I keep that listed on my wiki. And I try to keep that up to date so people know, like, where's where's that money going and, and what am I doing with it? But it makes me feel feel good to be able to support those projects that I love and that I use every day. So, yeah, if, if people come out and support me, I try to give back and makes a makes a huge difference. That's great. Thanks so much, Brian, for this conversation. And thank you for the channel that you run and the work you do. It's it's incredibly important. And I'm for one, I'm grateful for it. Well, my pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mechanical Inc. podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, share it with your friends. Leave us a review on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. Have something to add? Continue the conversation on GitHub and join the community on Slack. Until the next one, keep all the things open.